Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Word of our Lord. Oftentimes when we think about our engagement in the world, we are tempted to make the transformation that Jesus has done palatable for the world around us. And I would suggest that when we do that, we circumvent the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts and to be drawn to Jesus. And so we've, we, we've all kind of tried things like that. We've had, we've had friends at work and we thought, you know, maybe they'll really like this service. It's really a seeker service. We'll kind of do these things. And we, and we, we try to do everything that we can for our salt and our light to be effective in people's lives. And, and typically to no avail, we, we don't really know what to do. And so I think the Scriptures... The Scriptures really give us some insight into what our role is. So here's the big idea of where this sermon is pointed this morning. It's this. The only way to be relevant in the world is to be distinct from the world. Let me say it again. The only way to be relevant in the world is to be distinct from the world. The transformation that God does in the life of a believer is the very thing that makes the world around us thirsty for Jesus. So the question is, how do we present that transformation to the world around us? Because Jesus says in the Scripture that we're looking at today, so let your light shine before others that they may see your life and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is what He tells us to do. So how do we let that light shine? Well, I think we've got to first look at what uh, it doesn't look like in order to figure out what it does look like. So here's kind of three approaches on how uh, the church could engage the world. The first one is this, and these are historically proven kind of ditches that we jump in. Uh, So the first and second one are, and the third one is the one that Jesus offers us. The first one is this, syncretism. So what's syncretism? It's where the church hides in the world. So um, it it, it blends and it dilutes the versions of Christianity uh, to, to make the hard claims of the gospel more palatable to grab onto and to believe. Uh, so, so we do this uh, when we, when we, when we um, kind of think that we're going to receive opposition. We do everything that we can to try to stay away from that. And we forget that Jesus says, hey, there's going to be opposition. Because there's an eternal conflict going on in the world around you. So you've got to expect that opposition. And, and when you begin to slide down this slippery slope of syncretism, you all of a sudden become the world. And you lose your spine and your convictions that the Holy Spirit gives you. So that's one ditch you can jump in. We see it all around us. The second one is this, sectarianism. And this is where you hide from the world. So, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a fear-based approach to life. You know, one of those uh, hide in a bomb shelter in the mountains until Jesus returns kind of approaches to life, right? <laughs> we, we, we say, hey, if we can just get away from the world, then we could be more effective and we could keep ourselves pure. And as we're going to talk about later, this is kind of the emphasis of the whole monastic movement. And it misses so much of what Jesus has for the church. 
Folks that, that live this way have this kind of facade of control and this facade of protection that really try to, tries to do away without the power of the Holy Spirit in the day-to-day life. So, so those are the kind of the two ditches that we can jump in, syncretism or sectarianism. So what does Jesus invite us to? I would say that He invites us to be countercultural. And what's that mean? It means to engage in the world with conviction. To engage in the world with conviction. It's like Billy Graham used to say, you know, he had the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Guys, we are the only ones on the face of the earth that have any answers and any hope for the problems that we see all around us. I mean, could you imagine if the people that led you to Christ said, they just diluted the claims of Christianity to where they were, they, they weren't even distinctive from the world, or they hid in such a way where they were never around lost people. Could you imagine what would happen? How would we come to faith in Jesus? We've got to be countercultural. So what I want to do is I want to read this scripture one more time. Matthew 5, 13 through 18. I want you to consider the countercultural invitation that Jesus gives us. He says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So I want to give you uh, three words that will help us live counterculturally as Jesus' church. The first one is this, identity. Identity. So our role in the world is an identity. It's a calling before it is ever an activity. Jesus changes us before He tells us to go and change the world by the power of the Spirit. Uh, I, I, I'm reminded this week, I, I was at a, a faith at work study that I lead at a local business, and uh, this lady, we'll call her Linda, uh, was a part of the study this week. And so I, I came in, I was running late, and so Patrick uh, Choi was with me, kind of shadowing me that day. And we, we went in, and uh, on the way there, I, I hadn't prepared anything yet. I'm showing all my cards here. And, uh, and, w- and I just began to chat with Patrick and said, hey man, what should we talk about today? And we kind of worked up, we should talk about the parable of the soils. And so we kind of were spitballing it back and forth on the way over, and, and we came up with something, sent it over, and, uh, and we led... Uh, this group of probably 15 people through uh, the parable of the soils. And as we were reading it, I explained it a little bit, and, uh, and then we typically split off into some prayer time. And after I'd read the Scripture and briefly explained it, uh, this lady Linda, uh, who has historically had a pretty hard heart toward the Lord and toward life, was there that day. And you know what she began to do? As soon as the Scripture was read and they were splitting in their groups, she began to weep. She began to weep. She didn't care who saw her in that lunchroom, in that break room. And she began to confess, guys, my life does not look like this. My, 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 my life does not look like, the way that I treat people around me doesn't look like the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that as well. And, and, and she began to be convicted because of her sin. She began to be grieved because of her sin because she had been changed by Jesus on the inside and her actions had not yet followed it. This is the conviction that the Holy Spirit comes to give us. Guys, Jesus came to change you. 
He came to change you. He came to give you, he came to give you a new heart, which has new habits. And, and I would, I would ask you this. Has Jesus changed you? And if he hasn't yet changed your behavior, has he changed your heart and your convictions? Has he made you grieve over your sin? That's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Has Jesus changed you? Because Jesus gives this announcement in Matthew 13. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. He is looking at his Hebrew disciples who are following him, and he says this, you are the salt of the earth. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a statement. It's an identity statement. This is who you are. Then he goes on to say later in this selection of verses, you are the light of the world. It's who you are. It's who you've been made to be. There's no turning it on or turning it off. It's who you are. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And, and what I discover in this is that God must first be salt and light in us before He will be salt and light through us. It's, it's what He's come to do. And when we look at light, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Light reveals and it exposes and it brings everything into full view. So Jesus says that's, that's what your life is about. You, you've seen the whole picture. You know, things are a little dim now, but you have the light of the world living in you and collectively through you as the church. But what is a little bit more complex is this idea of salt. And I want to spend the majority of my time talking about that today. So, so what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? I think the first thing that we've got to understand is the context of what this audience would have seen salt to be when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. So if you've got a Bible, let's open up to Numbers chapter 18. I know you probably don't go there much. <laughs> Numbers 18 verse 19 says this, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. So he's talking about He's talking, he's giving instructions to the priest and the Levites about how the, the temple functions and, and what their role is. And, and he says this in verse 19 It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So, what's that mean? Like, we got endless salt? You know, we're, we're good to go here? I mean, what, what does a covenant of salt mean? Well, the first thing we got to look at is what is a covenant? A covenant is a, is a binding relationship between two or more parties that is, is kept together by a promise. That's what a covenant uh, is. And so uh, we believe that, that this is the primary way that God relates to us as His people. That's why we call a New City Church, we call our partners covenant partners because we're partnering with God in this covenant and living out the gospel together collectively. It is a, it's a covenant of salt. So, so the, the, way that, the way that we look at this relationship is that, uh, that Jesus, uh, the, rather the, the Scriptures say that, that God will be our God and we will be His people. So it's the same way, that identity statement is the same way that He says you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. God has come to make us His people. And He is relentless in His pursuit to make you His the whole Bible is the story of his pursuit after lost and wretched sinners to make them his. It's the whole reason why Jesus entered into humanity, entered into the picture of the world. So these, these Hebrews would, would hear these words and they wouldn't hear duty. They wouldn't hear, they wouldn't hear Jesus saying, hey, it's time to go get busy making disciples. They would first hear and be reminded of their relationship with God. And so when you hear these words, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, 
Do you hear duty or do you hear identity? Because Jesus has come to make us His. That's what a covenant of salt is. So why, so why salt? Well, well, let's think about what salt does. Before about a hundred years ago, salt was the only way to preserve and cure meats, right? There was no refrigerator. You couldn't just go plug it in uh, in, in the first century and, and you know, have a, a whole you know, uh, refrigerator full of meat that was good to go. You had to cure meat so it preserves things. It makes them last. It keeps things from spoiling. So he's saying that this relationship with God is permanent. That you can't wear out the grace of God. That you can't out the grace of God. That you can't run from the grace of God because He's the one that preserves us. So think about it. What a, del- what a delight to know that God cares for us in such a way where, where He's thinking long-term about His relationship with us and He has the power to keep and preserve it. He commits to you. When you, when you don't have the strength to commit to Him. So we see that His eternal, His covenant is eternal. That's what a covenant of salt is. It, also, I, I think it really, if you think about the role of salt, uh, I don't know if you guys have been to a movie lately or you've, you know, maybe, um, you know, been through a drive-thru and got some french fries or something like that. But if you were to eat those and they didn't have any salt on them, you'd be like, meh, I, I don't know, you know, this is, Take it or leave it. This isn't very good. You throw a little salt on it, season it a little bit, it's pretty darn enjoyable, isn't it? Pretty good. Throw a little salt on it. So salt is also for seasoning and enjoyment. So listen to what Leviticus chapter 2 says. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So we see that salt is this seasoning. Did you know that uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire, the word that we use uh, for salary comes literally from the phrase salt money. That, that there was a stipend that was given to each Roman soldier so that they could have money for salt. Because salt meant that they could enjoy life a little. They could live a little, right? I mean, things have changed a lot. I mean, we've got to have like Xbox and all this kind of stuff to enjoy life. Now, I mean, you just get a little salt money, you're good to go. So, salt, so that they had this salary, this salt money to go uh, and enjoy life on the weekends. It was this delicacy. It was for their enjoyment of everyday, ordinary things. That that salt changed the way that they experienced life. And, and so, what we see is that for the Christian's life, everyday, ordinary things are shot through with meaning because we're the salt of the earth. We represent God to the world. We have the corner on the market of a relationship with God through faith, by faith, through grace. We have it. It is ours. It cannot be changed. So, like we talked about last week, though the world wastes away, though it decays all around us, we are preserved. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Everything is shot through with meaning. Friends, did you know that God really wants you to enjoy Him? He he, he desperately longs for you to enjoy Him every single day. let, Let me ask you this. Do you let yourself enjoy God? If you're anything like me, I tend to beat myself up when I don't live up to the, the standard of, of Ryan's law. You know, I, I don't meet the expectations, so I begin to beat myself up. And I kind of punish myself 
And don't let myself enjoy God because I, I ultimately don't believe grace can be that good. And I think we do this a lot. I mean, I was just meeting with a friend recently and, and we're, we're going through this study in our discipleship group and, and we're talking about you know, joy. And, and we just kind of are talking about this idea that most of us have lost joy. And one of my friends I was talking to him about, he said, man, I've never had joy before. What's that like? Brother's been a Christian for a long time. Never had joy. There's more people in this room than you think. Non-circumstantial happiness for all of eternity. Joy. God has given Himself to us. He's changed our identity so that we can enjoy Him in all of life. Secondly, so identity is the first word. Second one, purity. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the third one too. Proximity. Identity, purity, proximity. These are the keys to engaging counterculturally in the world around us. Listen to what David Kinnaman says in his book, The Next Christians. He says this, Being salt and light demands two things. That we practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. If you don't hold both of these truths in tension, you invariably become useless and separated from the world God loves. So if you, go down, if you go down the road of syncretism and you lose the purity of the Gospel, you become useless. If you go down the road of sectarianism where you separate yourself from the world, you become useless because you're not in proximity to the world. So purity and proximity are the keys uh, to being effective uh, in this world. So <clears throat> when, when we think about this idea of purity, we think about this idea that, 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 we, that we have to be distinct to be effective. That God's done this work in us. He's changed us in order that we could be salt and light. We could be different from the world. I, I think we first got to look at how God has made us different. So th think about this. We, uh, we were, we were, before we met Jesus, we were impure. We were saltless. We were useless, good for nothing except to be trampled out on the ground. We had no kingdom value in our lives. We were unclean. And Jesus moves into our neighborhood, becomes like us, suffers for us to make us clean. So, so He moves into the neighborhood, proximity, with all of the purity of heaven that He has, all of the holiness of God that He exhibits and he, and he has within Himself. And He enables us to be useful again. And yet so many times we refuse to be useful in His kingdom and to enjoy Him because we think the world is too bad or it's going to change me. And, and I would confess to you when I live like this, I'm not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to actually use me as salt and light in the world around me. I mean, think about this. Jesus touched unclean people. I was listening to a sermon recently that was talking about this. Do you know what it would have meant for Jesus to touch unclean people? I mean, if Jesus had not healed the unclean people, the, the woman with the discharge uh, of blood, uh, the lepers that He touched, uh, the people that were blind, if, if Jesus would not have healed those people, He was throwing His entire ministry out the window. He couldn't be a rabbi. He was throwing it all away, but when Jesus came and He touched them and He healed them, He gave a completely new narrative. He gave a new way to live. It was no longer about cleaning yourself up and presenting yourself 
pure for worship. It was about God changing you from the inside and making impossible things possible by grace. He, he would have thrown his entire ministry away. When is the last time, church, when is the last time that you were drawn to touch someone that was unclean? You know what I mean by that. When was the last time that you were drawn to someone that was just on the fringes of society, that really didn't have a place? When was the last time that Jesus drew you to do that? Because He's drawing us there every single day. And He has much to do in us as we engage in that type of work. What if this reality were true? That, that God has not just saved you from the world, but He saved you for the world. That God has saved us for the sake of the world. He's going to rescue us in all of eternity where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more trials. But until that day, He is sanctifying you through building His kingdom in and through you to the world around you right now. Listen to what John 17 says. Now John 17 is, is Jesus' prayer that He exhibits before His disciples uh, right before He's crucified. And it kind of has three parts. The first part, Jesus is praying for Himself. Secondly, He's praying for His disciples, which is the part that we're looking at. And thirdly, He's praying for the disciples to come. He's praying for the world. Listen to what He says about disciples. Listen to what He says about us. How He prays for us. He says this in John 17, verse 13. But now I am coming to you. He's talking to His Father in heaven. He's coming to Him. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. They is us. I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, so, so, so we read that and we say, okay, yeah, I'm not of the world. Cool. Peace out. I'm gone. I'm going to hide. No, no, listen to what he says next. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? I mean, you don't, you're not going to take us out of the world. Then what are you going to do, Jesus? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is how Jesus is praying for you right now. That you'd be kept from the evil one as you engage in the world. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We, we, when we think about our salvation, we love to think about this idea of being you know, adopted into God's family, justified, you know, completely forgiven, our sins cast as far as the east is from the west, called into His presence. We love to think about all of those things. We especially, we love to think about glorification which is when we get these new heavenly bodies and we go to be with Him forever, fully in His presence. You know what we don't think about very often when we think about our salvation? Sanctification. We deal with it every day. It's the wrestling that Paul talks about when he says, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I just keep doing. I keep peeling paint. You guys remember that one? I just keep doing it. He says that it is for our good and our salvation is how He's sanctifying us by sending us into the world. And it's not by accident that He sent you to where you work. It's not by accident that He's placed you in the family that you're at. It's not by accident that you're going to encounter someone this afternoon that you may or may not have time for. None of that's by accident. It's because He sent you into the world. He has come, church, to make us salty. 
to make us salty. And you know what salt does? It makes you thirsty. Doesn't it? You eat something salty, you need something to drink. God has come to make the world around you thirsty for a relationship with Jesus. But we've got to remain pure in Jesus' sight to pursue His holiness. And we've got to stay in proximity with the world around us. Your purity is a gift from God for the sake of your enjoyment with God and for the sake of the world around you. It's what He's come to do. Lastly, I want to talk about proximity. So, so proximity. So we got identity, purity, and proximity. These are kind of the keys to engaging counterculturally in the world. So our role in the world must be lived out in close proximity to the world, but not individually, in the context of community. In fact, when you see, when Jesus makes these statements, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, the you is not in an individual kind of tense there, it's a plural tense. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, you guys, together, you guys are light, you guys are salt, together. Guys, we cannot live as salt and light in the world around us, isolated from other believers. You just cannot do it. You cannot become spiritually mature apart from other believers. God calls us to share in fellowship with each other. Um, you, you know, the, the temptation is, is to think that we need to protect ourselves from the world around us. And, the, and there is some wisdom that I'm going to give you in just a few minutes on really how to filter our engagement with the world. Uh, but the last thing he's done is, is tried to pluck us you know, out of it for good right now. We're here, we're here with a purpose. Uh, and I'm realizing time and time again how selfish I am uh, when I desire to be kind of taken out of the world or out of the people's lives that are around me. Uh, because God is inevitably always working something in me and in them as I share life with others. Um, to, to hide from the world and to isolate ourselves uh, outside of proximity with God is, is, if I could say this, is a cop-out. It's an easy way out. It's an easy way out to, to hide from the world. It's cheap. It's not what God has called us to. In fact, Paul Tripp uh, says this in his book, Dangerous Calling, which is, I, I got to Perimeter Church and I was becoming a church planter. And like one of the first books this guy hands me is this book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. And I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. Basically the whole book's about like, like uh, how not to become a pastor and lose your salvation. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you know what I mean by that. Not you can't lose it, but yeah. Anyway, so uh, Paul Tripp says this: in acknowledging the brokenness of the world where you live and minister, you do not want to give way to spiritual environmentalism. And this is where you blame all of your struggles on things outside of you. That was the mistake of the medieval monastery, walled community, separated from the evil world and intended to foster righteous living. As it turned out, though, these communities tended to repeat all the ills of the surrounding world from which they had been separated. Monasteries were a failure because they neglected one very significant biblical truth. Now, don't miss this. The biggest danger to every human, every human being, even those in ministry, is located inside of him, not outside of him. Mic drop, right? I'm serious. The, the most dangerous thing, friends is a heart not submitted to the will of God. That's the most dangerous thing because it'll do all kinds of things to try to find its identity. The most dangerous thing <laughs> is not the drug raid that happened in your neighbor neighborhood whenever you were uh, you know, uh, trying to have missional community on Tuesday night. True story, that happened this week. 50 DEA officers in my neighborhood. Um, 
That's not the most dangerous thing. I don't need to move neighborhoods. The most dangerous thing is not the people that you work with. It's not even the stuff on your TV. The most dangerous thing is the heart that lives inside of you when it's not submitted to the will of God. And you can't hide from that, right? It's inside of you. Every day, Jesus, friends, is sending you somewhere. What does it look like for us as a church to begin to foster people into the life of our collective community that we have, to experience the salty nature of who Jesus is, to become thirsty for the things of Jesus, to see the light and exposure of our sin as actually good news because it leads us to Jesus? What does it look like for you to have your life in such a way where you actually rub shoulders with people like that? Because that's what New City Church is all about. That's what we want to see happen. So what I want to do is I just want to give you, I want to give you, as I close this up, I want to give you three just kind of nuggets. Three, uh, three filters of cultural engagement. And you'll remember them. I didn't get these. They're not mine. Uh, a guy named Mark Driscoll shared these about eight years ago, and I just they've always stuck with me. Uh, so how do I know, how do I engage with the culture around me? Well, I've got this identity, I've got to be pure, and I've got to be in close proximity, but, but what about the specific things? The nuts and bolts. What's this? Receive, reject, redeem. Receive, reject, redeem. So let's, let's think about this real quick. Receive. So the culture around us, the world around us, there are some things, church, that we can just receive. There are some things like technology that we can just receive. You know, I love my iPhone, it's awesome. I mean, I got an office in a pocket, right? I mean, we can receive those things. Now, they can, they can lead to sin because of my heart, right? And your heart, they can lead to sin. But we can just receive the good gifts of technology and advancement uh, and how God has gifted people to develop things. We can receive the fact that we have electricity. We can receive the fact that we have running water. We can receive all of these common graces that God has given to the world. It doesn't matter who's made them. I mean, I don't have Christian tap water at my house, okay? I don't have a Christian iPhone. We can just receive these things. There are lots of things in culture we can receive. There are some things that we need to reject. Um, there, there are things in life that have absolutely no um, redemptive potential. Uh, you know, things like uh, stealing, uh, things like lying, uh, dishonesty, deceitfulness, pornography, abortion, uh, murder, drugs. They, they have no redemptive value, so we have to reject those things. And the, I think the lines on these things are a lot more gray than they have been in previous generations. Hey, that's okay though. That's okay. But we have to remain pure and reject those things. We can't tiptoe the line of things that have no redemptive value. We have to reject them. Now, the way in which we reject them must not become our gospel, though. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Sometimes our good news is what we're against, not what we're for. We're known as the people that don't do this. We don't support this. The gospel is what God has done for us. Now, there are two sides to that coin, but that cannot become our gospel. As you walk with Jesus, I promise you this, He will show you what you need to reject. He, he will show you how to engage uh, in the world. Uh, I think probably the, the biggest danger for us now is probably uh, our filter of media. I mean, if you have a regular diet of, of 
sexually explicit material that you're watching and you think it's not affecting you, you're crazy. You're crazy. It's affecting you. Megan and I, you know, became convicted of this. I won't tell you what show we watched, but uh, we were watching a show a couple years ago and we were like, we like didn't want to tell our discipleship group that we watched the show. And like we looked at each other on the couch one night, we're like, that's probably a problem, right? That's probably something not good with that. If your Netflix intake is consistently something that you're kind of ashamed of, probably not too good for you. There, there's some things you've got to reject because it is affecting you, even if you can't see it. Redemption. Receive, reject, redeem. This is the hard thing to do. This is the middle ground. This is the work that requires the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. This is the middle ground between being a syncretist and a, and a separatist. Uh, and, and the mistake uh, that, uh, that, that we, we don't want to make is, is to not ever engage in things in culture that make us rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to discern them. Because what we need to be as Christians is discerning people. Now discernment requires a lot of effort. It's not cut and dry. It's things that you wade into and you have to seek the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what I've realized is that we must constantly be interpreting and reinterpreting the world around us through the lens of Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. Constantly interpreting and reinterpreting this. So we, we need to do the hard work of helping one another to discern and grapple with what the world is selling and if there is redemptive value in it. Because there are a lot of things that are that we just give up on. We just give up on and we don't even engage as, as Christians. Um, you know, so, so just a quick uh, vignette of this for us. Um, it, it doesn't matter, I'll say this, it doesn't matter what, for parents, it doesn't matter what type of schooling you do. Listen, the thing I love about New City Church is that there are a lot of homeschool people here, but that's not your flag that you fly. It's just what God's called you to right now. There are public school folks here, and you're called to the public school. Awesome. There are private school people, and you're called that. It's awesome. It doesn't matter what your stance is on that and why you do it and what your convictions are. What matters is, are you helping your kids assimilate into the culture around you to be culturally discerning individuals? That's, that's the question. So what we've begun to do, and our kids are just getting old enough to be able to do this with, is whenever we see something that does not line up with the Scriptures, whether it be on TV or kind of culturally when we're at Stone Mountain or some language that they hear. I mean, we, we did have our, one of our kids cuss in front of a babysitter. We get a text. We're like, oh my goodness. I was like, yeah, I got that from their mama. Uh, but uh, I'm just kidding. She's, I don't think she's in here. Oh, she is. She's back there. Whoops. <laughs> uh, we, we, we got to help our kids assimilate into this. And so what we do is we just try to hit pause on it. We hit pause in that moment and we say, you know, what, what, do, you think, what do you think God's Word says about this? And, and should this be a part of our life or not a part of our life? This, I mean, because every, I mean, literally, every, you watch a PG movie, there's inappropriate stuff in it for your children. And so we just said, okay, let's, we're, we're going we're gonna to discern, you know, the, the content that they intake, but also like when they do experience things that are, do not line up with what we see in the scriptures, let's talk about it. Let's help them assimilate because if we protect them until they go to college, they're going to get to college and not know what to do. We've got to help them assimilate. And not only, this doesn't go only for parents, but also for all of us because we believe that we're called to this together, that we help each other raise each other's kids, that we're doing this together. 
This is hard work, but good work. And Jesus has called us to engage. And it's some of the most beautiful, life-giving work that we will ever do. And it was so hard. I'm reminded of what John Stott says, and I'll pray after this. He says this, We should not ask, what is wrong with the world? For that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask, what has happened to the salt and light? Let's pray. Father, we, we come to You today and we, we are those that You have salted with Your grace. And if we have been salted with Your grace, that compound is not breaking down. It is in us for good. That light that is living in us is in us for good. God, we confess that it is really difficult to discern what our engagement should be like. And Father, what we want to beg of You today is that You would teach our hearts how to engage in the Holy Spirit to help us interpret what it looks like to not only lead ourselves, but lead a generation of children that You've given to this church into effective cultural engagement all around us for the sake of the world that You love. Lord, we confess that we are prone to run away from the world and there are times we are prone to hide in the world and look just like it. But You call us to something greater. And You change us. And the change that You do within us and through us is the most attractive thing for a watching world to see. So God, help us to shine light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.